You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. Sit back, relax, and join Natalie Haynes in conversation with Jerry Foley, recorded as part of the Rayworth's Harrogate Literature Festival. Enjoy. My name is Jerry Foley. I'm a broadcast journalist and interviewer. And my guest today is Natalie Haynes, classicist, comedian, and broadcaster. And Natalie's here to talk about her new book, Pandora's Jar, Women in the Greek Myths. Um, thanks for joining us, Natalie. Um, it's my pleasure. I miss being an actual Harrogate, though. Do you? Ah, uh, we all miss it. Of course we do. I want to do. be at Betty's buying cake to bring her. I can't believe it. I genuinely schedule <laughs> my trips to Harrogate around the Betty's. Yeah, they, you know, they change cake sometimes. And I yeah. know. I feel so bad knowing this. I know that at the moment it would be Parkin and not chocolate ganache cake. Uh, <laughs> and I'd be happy with either, so it's fine. <laughs> I do feel slightly shamefaced that I know their cake. <laughs> well, I actually had a, I had a very nice slice of cake, which uh, my no, wife made. Don't uh, toy with me. So, yeah, I won't toy with you. It was really good. Victoria Sponge, basically. Oh, so, but, well uh, done, huh? All reliable. Um, so... From listening uh, to some of your previous broadcasts and reading about you, you did Latin and Greek at school and then you went on to Cambridge to study the classics. So yes. from an early age, it was the ancient world which drew you in. Yes, it had me at hello. Um, I started <laughs> doing Latin at 11, I think, or maybe 12 and Greek at 14. I took triple classics A-levels, which I'm pretty sure a school wouldn't let you do now because that is specialising very young. So I took Latin, Greek and ancient history. Um, and then, yes, went to study classics at Cambridge and never looked back at every at every stage. You know, I did some huge number, like 11 GCSEs or something. And I, I just didn't want that at every stage. The idea of giving up a classic subject made me feel desperately sad. And so it was a re it was really like, oh, no, I can't stop doing Latin because then I won't have Latin. I can't stop doing Greek because then I won't have Greek. And so it, it was a very kind of. Um, it was a weirdly emotional response to have, I think, to an academic subject. And I, I still feel like I exist in that sort of um, hinterland between, you know, sometimes I'm, I feel like a sort of quite an academic person for a broadcaster and a, and a novelist. Um, and Pandora is quite an academic book and was read by academics before it, it was edited. And yet at the same time, it's always emotional to me. It's like, I, I love these stories. I love this account. And I think, oh God, that's not a very academic answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you have lots of supporters in the academic world who are great admirers of your work. But just going back briefly to Cambridge, because obviously um, you are fascinated by the subject, but you're also involved in the Cambridge Footlights yes. uh, in terms of performance and acting and comedy and everything else. Was there a tug of war there between the performance side of you and the academic side? No, you performance started, no. one hands down. It one hands down. Really? As soon as I walked out on stage the first time, I was like, this is what I want to be. And I still loved classics, but it felt very much like my, you know, that's the thing I'm studying. And this is where my, you know, career is going to be. They felt like they'd separated at that point. It just didn't occur to me. And to be fair, I, I don't feel bad that it didn't occur to me because I don't think it occurred to anyone else for quite a while until I came along and did it, that you could combine stand-up and classics. Um, and that obviously is what I've done on tour for well, 10 years now, less so this year. Um, but, and Radio you know, and 4, obviously, radio highly series. successful. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who knew it was going to be possible to say to people, I'm going to do stand up about the ancient world and have them not go, okay, sweetheart, bye, bye. <laughs> <laughs> See you soon. I miss you. Instead, go, yeah, here you go. Here's 1.6 million listeners an episode. You go, oh, great, good. I'm glad this has worked out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, when your book was being launched a, a few weeks back, um, you had a quote which sort of intrigued me, which said that anything which happened after the Romans left Britain, I'm not much interested in. I don't, I just and, don't know it. I'm hopeless. To me, I say this over and over again, and I am never joking. When I read Wolf Hall, I read it as a thriller. I had no idea <laughs> what was going to happen. The whole way through, I'm like, you're kidding. Beheaded? Are you sure? I thought she was going to get off of that whole book. And everyone always thinks this is, it just isn't a joke. I just don't know. I, I mean, I know a little bit. I know little isolated blocks of time, but almost entirely from novels. I know that Sherlock Holmes isn't real, I think. <laughs> well, I don't want to break it to you or spoil it, but Henry VIII did end up having six wives, and it doesn't Dad. end well for any of them. Right. But that's a secret between us and this. Let's talk about your book. Okay. And I suppose the first thing we've got to talk about is obviously the title, the opening chapter, Pandora's Jar. Yes. We've all been misled due to a mistranslation from the 15th, 16th century. Yes, it's Erasmus's fault. So in Greek, uh, Pandora is, in visual art, never depicted with any receptacle at all. And in, um, in literary accounts, sometimes a jar is mentioned and sometimes it isn't mentioned. But she never, ever, 100% of the time, ever has a box. Just not once, just not ever. She has occasionally a pythos, a jar. Um, Which is inherently unstable. They are inherently unstable. Peculiarities, yeah. (laughs) Right, you've you've seen these in a museum. If you go and see um, a museum of antiquity anywhere in um, Italy or Greece, anywhere that is earthquake prone, you'll see that they tend to be, um, they're very, very narrow at the base. They come up to being very, very fat. Um, And the Greeks or Romans often kept them kind of tilted on their sides, sort of stacked together so they'd support each other. Um, but if you go and see them in a museum of antiquity somewhere where there are earthquakes, they're always strung together, you know, on a, a display unit because they're so, they're so precarious. It's like if you're going to have, and only in some versions of her story is this the case, if you're going to have the world's evils <laughs> and put them in a receptacle, do you know which one I wouldn't use? A jar. Gone for a terrible option. Just don't do it, guys. Just don't. And in some versions, I feel I have to say, in some versions of her story, Pandora's story, the jar is full of good things, uh, according to Theognis in his elegies. Um, in some versions, it's full of bad things. Uh, Hesiod uh, says that all the kind of care and hard work is what's in there. Um, although actually, I, I quite like caring and hard work. So maybe I'm, well, in this, as in so many ways, I don't fully coincide with the thinking of Hesiod. Um, but yeah, it's only when Erasmus comes along to translate it, um, he takes the word pithos from Hesiod, jar, and translates it to the Latin word pixis, box. And within a really short space of time, sort of 30 years or so, you start seeing Pandora paint in paintings shown with like a strong box with, you know, straps yeah. malevolent effort to open this. And it's like, wait, <laughs> how did this happen? You know, for the Greeks, Pandora was an agent of change. She sent to um, mortals by Zeus, well, technically by Hermes, but she's a gift from Zeus, um, to, to, as a sort of accompaniment to, or in exchange for, or as a penalty for, fire. Prometheus, the Titan, steals fire from the gods and gives it to us. And the payback or accompanying thing is Pandora. And so I think it's really interesting that we think of Pandora as being evil. It's because we've mapped her story onto the story of Eve, I think. 
um, and this notion of you know a woman being responsible for the fall of man it's like oh do me a favor i figured it would be one of our faults but thanks for making it clear <laughs> but actually i think when you look at the when you look at the way that we kind of operate in our world we things do change when this when fire arrives you know this isn't it's a huge evolutionary step for human beings is is the arrival of fire the discovery of fire and so pandora kind of brings that she heralds that change with her and it's like well is our life now more is it is it less carefree than it would have been if we'd lived in a pre but i mean it probably is but that's but, but you i mean what you what you tack into very early on uh, in the um in the first chapter and throughout the book and you've mentioned it already is the way in which these myths the several versions of these and uh, you know you you know your different versions but some of them have become more established in the public mind if you like right. uh, and that's where the box comes in for pandora but also you mark in the first chapter you talk about how women were totally excluded from Athenian society. They were locked away, cloistered, almost like nuns. They didn't, weren't allowed out. There was just great fear that if they were allowed, allowed out, they might catch the eye of another man. Certainly true um, for upper-class women, yeah. Lower-class women yeah. probably did have to go out for work and so on. But yeah, the posher you were, the less freedom you had in 5th century BC Athens, yeah. But you also, uh, in the first chapter, talk a little bit about the fact that Pandora is on the Parthenon in, in Athens, obviously, mm. as an important symbol for all women, for all womankind. Yeah, because there aren't women before Pandora. Um, so you, are, we're literally different, according to the Greek origin story, we're literally different races. You are descended from Erichthonius, and I am descended from Pandora. And so in visual art from the ancient world, Pandora is always shown at, at the point of being created, because all the gods get together to contribute to her creation. Hephaestus um, sculpts her out of clay. Um, we can see vases where she's being, it looks kind of violent, but it isn't, I promise. She's being sort of hammered out of the ground. Um, because that's how you presumably that's how sculptors got their clay and so that's the image that's um that's then borrowed and and put in into mount olympus and then all the other gods and goddesses kind of contribute so the seasons and the hours and athene and they all come and offer some you know skills or uh qualities or address in one case um and that's the and that's where, again, it's one of those things hesiod says that's why she's called pandora all gifted because all the gods gave her a gift but Here's the thing, another linguistic shift. If um, Pandora is, is an active word, not a passive word. If, if it meant all gifted, it would be Pandosa. Pandora is all giving. So she is all gifted, the gods have all given her a gift, but she's also generous. The, as an adjective, Pandora is usually used to describe the earth, which is all giving of all those plants that we'll be eating and so on and so on and so on. So again, it's a positive quality, which we've taken away from her if we think of her as being the girl with the gifts. <laughs> um, you dedicate the book to your mum. I do. Uh, she's really uh, pleased, in case you were wondering. Oh, you, she's pleased. You had a lovely photo online of the two of you, but actually <laughs> it's the quote which intrigued me as well, which was that she always has more admiration for what you say, a woman with an axe rather than a princess, which appeals to I you, obviously. I think I with interest rather than admiration, just in case interest, people thought sorry, my mum was sorry. actually a serial killer. My mum is not a serial <laughs> killer. But yeah, my mum You're correct, is, it is interest, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, my mum was never very interested in stories of princesses sort of sitting and waiting to be rescued. I remember her buying me a, a book when I was little called The Practical Princess, which was entirely about princesses who sort of went and sorted their own problems out and then rescued a prince on the way home. And that's exactly the daughter 
who she ended up with, to be honest. So she's only got herself to blame. But yeah, I think. I, I, I wonder, Natalie. Because the women are so interesting. Well, uh, sorry, sorry, to, sorry to, to, to cut across because I was um, wanted to sort of, I could link to the Amazons mm. as a group of women, because that to me sort of um, triggered that reaction because the collective power of women and the strength of women together. And as you say, the Amazons. Well, you tell us about the Amazons because their fashion sense for, for starters was Absolutely very unique. incredible. Yeah, no, Amazons are amazing because they have um, a completely different ethos um, to warrior men in Greek narrative. So if we were to read, for example, the Iliad, Homer's incredible war narrative, what we see is an awful lot of very individualistic heroes fighting for themselves. Very occasionally you get a connection between two men, for example, Achilles and Patroclus. Um, although we never see them fight alongside each other for reasons which are very clear. I won't spoil it for you, just in case. Um, but generally, these men fight for individual glory. Kleos, fame that, that transcends your death, is the thing that you go for. I should say that when we meet Achilles in the underworld in book 11 of the Odyssey, um, he regrets this decision. He says to Odysseus, his shade says to Odysseus, that he'd rather be working the land as a living man than king among the dead. So, you know, pursuit of glory at all costs, it turns out a little late in the day, um, to not have been the best choice he felt that he could make. But it's a very individualistic thing, whereas Amazons always fight in a gang. You know, they're always a group. They defend each other and support each other. It's a really tribal thing. And it's another of the, the, the Greeks love binaries. They just love them. They love looking at things as gods and mortals, men and women, you know, this and this, this and this, free and slave, another of their binaries. And uh, it's another of the ways in which they can distinguish themselves. So the Amazons are already very strange because they don't behave like women who should obviously be cloistered at home in Athens. Um, and instead they live in this place, Themyscira, without any men around. So how's that happen? They must be killing all the boy children whenever they arrive. <laughs> you know, and it's like, like that doesn't happen in, for example, Sparta anyway. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and they dress in a very deviant way. And by deviant, I mean that, for example, Amazons are shown wearing trousers which is incredibly shocking to the greeks because of course what you should be wearing is a tunic and then you should have bare legs that's how a decent greek man behaves right and a decent <laughs> greek woman should be wearing a longer version of the same but amazons wear a tunic top and they have these incredibly you can see them on vase paintings amazons were so popular um on vase paintings they're the second most popular mythological figures to be depicted on vases after heracles hercules to give him his roman name um we have you know, dozens and dozens of Amazon names written, dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds of images of Amazons fighting. Um, and their clothes are so ornate. You know, they have leggings um, or trousers, boots that they wear rather than having sandals or bare feet. And these incredible tunics, which often have like a, a diamond or a square pattern on, which is not just um, decorative. It's almost certainly... Um, armor so what you did was make these little tiny patches basically out of either um, flax or leather which are then glued in layers onto the tunic so it would act as extra armoring for and one of the nice things also is in nearly every chapter you bring uh, the myth up to date in terms of its relevance to modern culture yeah and in Amazon's the case of the is Amazon. an easy one yeah yeah well go on tell us well who, because who happily be for me wonder woman has been rebooted in recent years and indeed is about to be a sequel rebooted as well because uh, mm -hmm. wonder woman 1984 is due out pretty soon i think um and Bobby. Uh, say again 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Buffy, of course. I mean, Amazons are actual Amazons. You know, the Amazons of Wonder Woman are. They live in a, a really interesting minor spelling variation, but they live in Themyscira exactly the same way as Greek Themyscira, but just a little spelling switch so that they can, I presume, copyright it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Buffy is another case in point, a, a warrior woman who fights alongside other women, particularly in later seasons of Buffy. Again, I don't want to spoil it, so turn the sound down for a couple of minutes if you're um, not up to date with the final season of Buffy. But in the final season, she empowers all the other potential vampire slayers in the world so that they can all fight, so that the burden won't just be on her. And it's a really interesting um, retelling, I think, of that that Amazon ethos, which is not individualistic glory, which you'd expect from something where she's the title character, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but actually what she wants to do is, is share it. She wants to share it with all these other young women so that they can you know, share the burden and the glory. Let's go to probably uh, one of the most relevant uh, figures from the ancient past to, to today, and that's uh, Medusa. Mm. Uh, I know you're writing a novel, uh, planning to write a novel. Yes. But the story, uh, the Me Too movement, we have to tell her story. But let's start with our basic story, and then we can bring it forward to why, even in the past week or two in New York, it's become very relevant to modern. So. Yeah, so maybe the basic story. Yeah, I mean, Medusa is the, um, and I fully trigger warning this whole section, um, Medusa is the uh, original monstered rape survivor. So she is raped by Poseidon. I should say that in one account by Pindar, they have consensual sex, but usually it is a much less consensual um, encounter than that, certainly in Ovid, for example. Um, and she is raped in the temple of Athene, and Athene uh, prizes... Um, chastity, not in the same way that Artemis does, but still. Um, and she's so outraged by the violation of her temple um, that she punishes not Poseidon, who you would think would be uh, the responsible party here, uh, but Medusa. Perhaps she's not strong enough to um, punish Poseidon, uh, or perhaps she just does as uh, so many people have, uh, blame the victim. Um, and the, her response to Medusa's um, violation is to give her the snakes for hair. We've been told before that, that she's very beautiful, that her hair is the most, Ovid says her hair is the most beautiful thing about her. His narrator at that point says, I've heard it from somebody who saw her, um, which is a typical Ovidian detail. Um, but she ends up with the snakes for hair, so she's, her beauty is destroyed. And also she has this lithifying gaze, the power to turn things to stone if she looks at them. We don't know if that, that's part of Athena's transformation, or if, uh, if it predates it, there's no mention of where they, exactly when the um, petrifying <laughs> stare comes in. Um, and then she retreats um, and uh, stays with her sisters. I think it's interesting that we always think of her as a sort of a soul monster, because that's how she's usually depicted. But actually, she's one of three Gorgons. Um, and she and her sisters, Steno and Uriali, uh, all live together. Um, and Perseus, uh, who, who comes into the story later, um, the Gorgons pre predate Perseus by centuries. Um, Perseus decides that he needs to, he's, he's given an uh, instruction um, by a king who wants to get him out of the way so he can shack up with Perseus's mother, um, that he needs to go and collect the, the head of a Gorgon. And Medusa is the only mortal Gorgon. Um, and so Perseus gets the assistance of Athene and Hermes. He borrows a bunch of things, a hat of Hades that makes him invisible. And uh, he has a cabesis, a sort of special backpack that you can carry, yeah. you know, 
um, something like the head of a gorgon in. Um, and then he tracks Medusa down with a great deal more help from the Grii, the three sisters who share an eye and a tooth in some versions. Um, and uh, he decapitates her while she's asleep. And it's the brutality he, of that act. It's incredibly which... brutal because, again, we're used to that version in the Ray Harryhausen movie in Clash of the Titans, where she is stalking him and he is stalking her. You know, where Harry Hamlin is behind a pillar, and you know she's coming. She's got a bow and arrow, and she's all ready to, you know, attack him. She's killed one of his comrades, and he's turned to stone, and so on. So we we're used to seeing it as a duel, and it simply isn't. You know, she's unconscious when Perseus decapitates her. It's an incredibly brutal um, scene and you can see it in Bar's paintings from the ancient And then art. he goes on to use the severed head to enhance his power, his standing. Absolutely. Because, yeah. Um, he uses her severed head as a, as a weapon of mass destruction. There's an incredible moment where he turns Atlas, the, the giant, into a mountain. That's how the Atlas Mountains exist, I suppose. Um, and uh, he, there's an incredible moment in Ovid where he, he gets sort of in a in a bit of a tiff with uh, the occupants of an island and he just turns a lot of them to stone in one go. It's really just petulance. Um, and it makes him seem a lot less heroic. <laughs> and you look at it, it's like, wow, he turns people to stone at his own wedding. Um, and it's like, mate, just don't ask them if you don't want to. It's not obligatory. So yeah, he's a pretty, he's a pretty rumman, I would say, Perseus. And one of the aspects that you explore in that particular chapter is the idea of the gorgon, the head, and the fact that they're described as having what you say is a grim noise. Mm. So they don't have a voice. And yet you say that's contrasted with other male figures who have plenty of time to uh, explore and use their voice, even if in some cases it's just being good at shouting, as you say. Right. So um, the, the Gorgons in general, but particularly when Medusa is, um, is slaughtered by Perseus and he runs away, her two sisters chase after him and they're described as making this terrible noise, a baleful or direful sound like a dirge. And the language is always very negative. Um, and I mean, in a way that makes sense. If you look at Gorgonea, which are the heads of Gorgons that you often see on temples, um, sometimes uh, we can read them being described on, uh, on shields because obviously it's just round. So that makes sense. They often have very, very wide mouths and it, it would make sense that they could make a racket because they've got this big mouth. Um, and often tusks as well, uh, sometimes pointing up and down. It's like, how no. do you even do that? Um, but <laughs> yes, so that is a, is a common version of it. But it's always presented as a very negative thing that they make this noise. Whereas Diomedes, um, who we're told about in the Iliad with his Homeric epithet, is always, um, is always translated as something like Diomedes of the Great War Cry. Diomedes, you know, terrifying as he, you know, calls or cries or shouts. But actually, it literally means good at shouting, the Greek. And it's like, well, how come it's good when he shouts and bad when she does? It's almost as though we are holding people to different standards because of gender. I can't believe this has happened. Just as well, it's in the ancient world and doesn't have any... Uh, yeah, I'm glad we've grown out of that. Goodness me. <laughs> okay, we teased at the beginning of the conversation on Medusa about this very point about Me Too and where it's Medusa who has the severed head. It's not her head. Right, which has been severed. Explain why that's become so important and relevant to contemporary uh, generations. Yes, so there are a, a bunch of sculptures, um, in particular uh, the Cellini 
um, and also the Canova, there's a copy in the um, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, which is particularly relevant at this point. Um, and it's called Perseus Triumphant, and it's a beautiful statue in its way of a very handsome naked Perseus holding up the head of the decapitated Medusa. Um, and you kind of look at it, I've walked past it dozens of times, and thought, yep, there he goes. It's, and then you kind of go, no, wait a minute, sorry. <laughs> only, he's only triumphant if you're on his side. Otherwise, he's a man glorying in the death of a woman. I know she's got snakes for hair, but it, she, it's not quite the same as George and the Dragon, is it? It's, it is. <laughs> and two years ago, in 2018, when Professor Christine Blasey Ford was giving her evidence about Brett Kavanagh having assaulted her um, at college to the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, there was a reversal of this meme, um, a reversal of this image which, which circulated on the internet at, at remarkable speed, as memes tend to. Um, and Medusa and Perseus had been used like this before. The Canova or the Cellini um, had been used in the 2016 presidential election with um, obviously the current president, um, I'm not sure when this broadcast, but let's say mm. he isn't still the current president by then, um, holding up the head of Hillary Clinton. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and then when Christine Blasey Ford gave her evidence, there was a gender switched version of this image, which um, is a completely black background. And then it's a naked woman, Medusa. She's got be she looks beautiful, you know, she's got snakes for the hair, but they look like dreadlocks. They, she just looks incredibly human. And she's holding up the head of a young man. And in some versions of this image, it was just that, just the gender reversal. But in some versions, there was text which said next to her head at the top of the image, be thankful we just want equality. And then down here next to his head and not payback. And the first time I saw that, I literally gasped I, <gasps> like that on my own. And I just, <gasps> and I thought afterwards, what on earth does that say about my prejudices that I'm not shocked by the Canova, which I've seen in real life, but I'm shocked when you reverse it. Why am I honestly? And I realized that actually it wasn't just the prejudices of authors or artists that I needed to unpick in this book. It was mine as well. It's like, it shouldn't be more shocking to see a decapitated man than a decapitated woman. They should both shock us. And yet this very month in New York, outside uh, the Manhattan court where Harvey Weinstein was found guilty, the yes. city council has put up uh, for six months a statue mm. which reflects the new reality which you've just described. A copy of this, yeah, I think it's bronze, um, but a yeah. copy has been cast um, only, and it's gone up this week, the week we're recording, um, of this. Um, the, the artist whose um, image it was when the meme went round is called Luciano Garbatti. He's Argentinian-Italian, I think. Um, and it's been cast by um, another artist this week, I think, but obviously with his involvement um and and then put up outside the courtroom and it's like that thing where you kind of go oh my god that's so that feel that feels so incredible to me to see a piece of public art and yes it's violent and aggressive but like i say the canova has been in in the metropolitan museum of new york and, and people walk past it in their thousands tens of thousands every day let's go on to a few other characters because there are many in here um yeah we're all familiar with the TV series, The Good Wife. Let's look at The Bad Wife. Uh, <laughs> it, it's a tremendous story, this actually. It really is. Uh, well, you, you, you go on and tell who I'm talking about, Clemestra. 
Clytemnestra yeah. is the absolute, yeah, she is the bad wife or the worst wife probably, um, but she's still the best wife as far as I'm concerned in terms of um, <laughs> delight to write about. Um, <laughs> because um, we're always presented with her as, I'm always suspicious, if I'm absolutely honest, of anyone who's presented to me as, you know, the worst, the best. You're like, I bet they aren't though. I bet they're more like a person. Um, and Clytemnestra is a case in point because she is always feared and reviled in Greek myth. Um, because, of course, uh, at the beginning of the Trojan War, well, no, let's start with the end, shall we? And then we can see... Yeah, start with the end. When her husband, Agamemnon, who has been the commander of the Greek armies at Troy, when he returns from the Trojan War, so he's been gone for 10 years fighting and he comes home, Clytemnestra has uh, begun an affair with his great enemy, a man named Aegisthus. And when he returns home, when Agamemnon returns home, she invites him into the palace. Um, and while he's having a bath, at least in the version that we get in uh, Aeschylus, um, she kills him with a sword. Um, in some versions, it's an axe. Uh, in some versions, Aegisthus does the killing. But in the Aeschylus, the Agamemnon, um, which was first performed in 458, I think, BC, um, it, which is just the most magnificent play. I can't recommend it enough. Um, she kills him with a sword. And the chorus say, you know, this is appalling. How can you do this? You know, you're a terrible kind of person. And she says, well, why do you value his life and not Iphigenia? And Iphigenia is their daughter, or rather was mm. their daughter. Clytemnestra and Agamemnon had a daughter. In fact, they've got another, Electra and a son, Orestes, who she's uh, shoved out of the way while this um, retribution occurs. <laughs> Although he may re-emerge to uh, play a role. <laughs> in, in, in play two, the koi for yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, but the daughter the, is central to this, the loss. The, the right. murder of a daughter. It was a slaughter. Yeah, I mean, mm. sacrificial killing. So when the Greek army was massing at a place called Aulis in order to get a fair wind to sail to Troy 10 years earlier, the wind drops because the goddess Artemis has been offended in most versions by Agamemnon. He's done something wrong. This is absolutely no surprise to anyone who ever meets him in any version of any of his stories where he's always crassly walking around being petulant and appalling. But he offends the goddess Artemis in some way and he's told by their priest um, that the only way of making recompense to her and thus allowing the wind to let them sail to Troy is to sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia. And so he um, summons his daughter, who uh, in most versions comes to Aulis with her mother, with Clytemnestra, for her wedding. She's going to marry Achilles, the great, you know, the most incredible mm. warrior that the Greeks have, and it is all a trick. And when she gets to the, uh, as she perceives it, altar, it turns out not to be a, a wedding altar, but is a sacrificial altar. And she is, um, her throat is slit by her father, or she's stabbed by her father. Um, and that is how the Greeks sail to Troy. And in some versions, including in Aeschylus, in the opening chorus of that play, she's gagged first, so she can't curse them. It is so awful what happens to Iphigenia. And you say, this, what, there's a suggestion that uh, another child that uh, Clytemestra had was also sacrificed. Well, sacrificed uh, is overstating the case. I yeah. mean, just murdered, really. Mur okay. Oh, yeah, that, but, for no gain, uh, really, other yeah. than his own petulance. Again, when um, Agamemnon and Clytemestra meet, so earlier, 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 long before Iphigenia is born, uh, she's married to a man named Tantalus, and Agamemnon kills Tantalus, and she is nursing their child at the moment that this killing happens. Um, and Agamemnon, this, is, this story is in a um, monologue in um, Euripides of Phigenia and Aulis, uh, in 
Yes, an owlet. Um, I won't challenge it. <laughs> it's like, is it Fujinara among the Taurians? I'm pretty sure it's owlet. Um, she, uh, he, he takes the baby from her, from her breast and, and smashes it on the ground. So when he kills a Fujinara, that's the second of her children he's slaughtered. It's the first of his, I guess, but it's the second of hers. And so she waits for 10 years to take her revenge. And I thought, how interesting that we always think of her as a bad wife, when actually we should think of her as a good mother, shouldn't we? I like to think that, <laughs> you know, if you well, had the, a child and somebody yeah. did that, you would go all guns to, I'm not suggesting that retributive <laughs> justice is the best way. Clearly it isn't. Clearly societal justice <laughs> is better with law and order and courts and police. But in a pre-that society, which is when Clytemnestra, why the hell wouldn't she? You know, she says to the chorus, why is her life not important to you and his is? And that's a question that the more time I spent in her story, the less I felt able to answer. There is no reason why her life is worth less than his. But of course, the, the, her son, their son, uh, takes a different view mm. and feels then that he has to revenge the death of his father. Actually, this... You mentioned early on in the foreword to the book that your dissertation at Cambridge was about uh, the murder of children. In, mm. Well, uh, women Greek murdering children. Uh, women, sorry, by women murdering children. I don't have children. If you're looking around for body parts behind me, there aren't any. Don't worry. Don't write in. Calm yourself. I haven't even got a pet. I've got a plant. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Well, there seems to be a lot of it about, is all I can say. And ah. in our next character, uh, one of the great, great plays... Uh, the great roles for an actor, female actor, an actress, is uh, Medea. Yes. I mean, it is yeah. the greatest play ever written, in my view, in any language. Um, really? Yes. Oh, God, yes. I think, it's an, I think it's an absolute masterpiece. I love Euripides anyway. I love Greek tragedy anyway. But even by his standards, I think it is. I've been writing about it since I was 16, 17. And when I reread it for the a millionth time... For Pandora, I was still finding things and it was like, how haven't I noticed this before? How did I miss this piece of symbolism or this echo or this incredible bit of psychology? How did I, it's just the most extraordinary play. Medea is this incredible, complicated character who sometimes is presented to us as being basically a witch and she certainly has witchy powers. Um, we don't know this because the version that we tend to know is from the Harry Harryhausen movie, Jason and the Argonauts, where all the cool stuff that Medea does in Greek myth is done by Jason, right? So yes. all the good stuff that women can do, hold on a minute, let's give it to her. Oh, just do me a favor. But that's what happens. So um, it is Jason who, for those of you who have memorized this film as, as I have, it's Jason who, for example, kills the bronze giant Talos. He gets help from Honor Blackman, uh, the goddess Hera, uh, who tells him what to do, but he has to go and do all the, you know, brave stuff. So this huge bronze giant crashes to the ground and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Um, but in uh, the version that we have in, for example, Apollonius of Rhodes, his uh, epic poem, The Argonautica, it's Medea who, who takes on the bronze giant. The Argonauts are all just panicking, um, not unreasonably, because there's a bronze giant throwing rocks at them. So uh, very much on their side at this point. But Medea is ice calm. And she's just like, yep, don't worry, I've got this. And she calls down on her power from Hecate, who's a, the witchy goddess. Um, and it's actually really harrowing. Um, the, the giant has a sort of weak spot on his ankle. In the movie, it's like a plug. Um, but uh, she doesn't make him, she, she doesn't, you know, magic something to hit it. She magics him to 
to injure himself with a rock at that point. She makes him kill himself. It's so unnerving. And so we have this idea of this extremely powerful, you know, she's a young woman who falls in love with an adventuring hero. Uh, not that unusual it happens with Ariadne and Theseus and various other um, characters in myth, but she is simultaneously this extremely dangerous sorceress, I suppose. Uh, and what you like, what you like talking about is and contrasting is the relationship between herself and Jason when Jason basically again has gone off and hooked up with somebody else. Mm. But you can see there's the the kernel of what was once a close relationship and the uh, embers so of it. The, yeah, uh, the dialogue like is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, all of it is amazing. The opening monologue of Euripides Medea is so striking on the issue of how terrible it is to be a woman um, that it was being read at suffrage meetings just mm -hmm. over 100 years ago. And this is a monologue that was written by a man. It was originally performed by a man wearing a mask uh, because all Greek theatre worked like that. And almost certainly its original audience at the Dionysia, the the theatre festival in Athens, it was almost certainly an all-male audience. We've got no evidence that says women were there and women are generally excluded from civic life in Athens. So this incredible, entirely male-generated monologue was so extraordinary in how women's lives were that, as I say, it was still being read at suffrage meetings 2,300 years later. The monologue in the middle, where she deliberates over whether or not she can really bring herself to kill her children, is one of the greatest psychological explorations of anger in any, in any language at any point in history. But yes, you're right, these incredible dialogic exchanges, these agones, as they're called, where two characters just properly have a ding-dong, is how I would describe it in a slightly less high-minded way. It's just remarkable because they're, the way they exchange, and there are lots of these in tragedy, and you know, lots of them are good, but the way that Jason and Medea exchange their insults it, you can feel the kind of chemistry. It's, it's, it's bristling with electricity. You know, it's she hurls insults at him and he hurls insults. And it's like, bam, 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 bam. And you can totally see that there is no way that this couple isn't going to destroy each other. But also, you can totally see why they fell for each other. You know, every, they know each other so well and yet not ever well enough. You know, Jason is smart, but he's not as smart as she is. And he knows it and it kills him. And she knows it and she twists the knife. You know, they're at that exact point. And it is one of the reasons why the players perform so often, but also one of the reasons why it's, I guess, in some ways difficult to watch is because it's such a, it's such a contemporary feel. You know, most of us don't know I'm extrapolating from my own life experience here, but I'm, I feel confident. Most of us don't know what it's like to accidentally kill our fathers and marry our mothers, but we have all seen a couple at this point mm. in their relationship where all they can do is use everything that brought them together to twist the knife into each other. And it is so upsetting to watch, but this is what is captured so magnificently by Euripides in this play. And the other thing which is uh, very difficult to watch, although it, doesn't, it happens off stage is when she does actually kill her children. She does, and we and hear it. I mean, we you hear, hear it. it. It's off stage. We hear her children screaming, there's no safe place for us to go to. Mother, don't hurt me. It's like, oh my God, this is so harrowing. It is unbearably upsetting. It's a play I saw the first time when I was maybe 16. And my dad drove me to London from Birmingham where I grew up um, to see Diana Rigg play the part wow. at the Almeida Theatre in Islington. Um, and uh, he obviously had a crush on Diana Rigg because he wasn't blind. Um, and so he drove <laughs> me down to London specially to see her with you know, no vested interest of his own, I'm quite sure. And it was the most extraordinary thing I've, I'd ever seen with sort of completely blank stage, as I remember it anyway, this sort of metal 
backdrop. And at the moment where Jason arrives right near the end of the play and says, you know, give me the bodies of my children to bury. She's destroyed everything. She's destroyed his new marriage. She's destroyed his capacity to stay in Corinth because she's slaughtered the entire royal family. She's really, really gone for it. And then he discovers she's killed his children. And he says, please, you know, let me have the bodies for burial. And as I remember it anyway, um, she's, she, she certainly refuses in the um, Greek, but she banged the back wall, Diana Rigg banged the back wall and these two huge metal panels which were on wires, suddenly fell down. And the noise at the Almeida, which is not a big theatre, no. clattering against the back, was deafening. And the children's bodies were behind them. And I remember thinking, at that moment, I'll never be the same again. I, I will never be the same again. And that was it. You know, I was lost to the theatre, to classics, to Euripides. It's like, I will never, this will always be a moment in my life where you can properly say, this is when I change. It's like, I'll never stop studying this, ever. Well, I can see why, as you say, it's such a powerful play, which has stood more than stood the test of time, but mm. also to have the privilege of seeing Diana Rigg, because reading her recent obituaries, right. her stage work was phenomenal. It I was mean, astonishing. And really, I've seen her yeah. daughter play the role as well. I've seen Rachel Sterling ah, play, yeah. uh, play it too. I must have seen probably 30 productions of Medea in my adult life, starting with that one, which was an <laughs> extremely high bar to set. <laughs> yes. um, I've seen one other that was almost as good um and generally you know they've some of them been really not yeah. good at all some of them like rachel sterling's have been great um but yeah it's it's the diana rig one that i always come to in my mind when i have to think about it well or, as you say a very important moment for a 16 year old who was oh already roast in the classics let's yeah. talk a little bit about helen of troy yes another famous character um fair to say she had a difficult childhood yeah, again, it's one of those things we don't think about because we think of her as Helen of Troy, the great seductress. You know, she has an affair. She has this adulterous relationship with Paris. They elope and she causes the Trojan War. And you go, right, <laughs> glad we sorted that out. What did Paris do again? Um, but of course, she's not always Helen of Troy. She starts out as Helen of Sparta uh, in southern Greece, the Peloponnese. And uh, in fact, technically, um, the, the abduction of Helen, uh, because in some versions of the Helen and Paris saga, uh, she's kidnapped in some versions she goes willingly but the abduction of Helen is responsible for two wars not one two um, so there's the one where she leaves with Paris where sometimes she's co-responsible and sometimes she isn't but when she's a child either seven or ten depending on our sources mm -hmm. and you know that they're squeamish when they're trying to round up to the nearest ten my god <laughs> um, she's abducted by Theseus of Minotaur killing fame um, and Theseus at the time is in his 50s and he and his friend Perithous decide that they'd both like to marry a daughter of Zeus. And they flip a coin, not a coin because coins don't exist yet. Yeah. I mean, they, they you know, draw straws or whatever. Um, and uh, they decide that Perithous should have Persephone, who's queen of the underworld. So they have to go down to the underworld to get her. Let's call that a needlessly risky idea. Um, and Theseus will have Helen, who is seven or 10 years old. And so they abduct Helen and um, stash her with a friend of his near Athens. Uh, Helen's brothers, Castor and Polydeuces, we sometimes call them Castor and Pollux, um, come to reclaim her and a war begins because the Athenians don't know where she is because they don't know that she's been abducted or where she's been stashed. And eventually um, the, the two brothers win and they um, reclaim their sister um, and indeed enslave Theseus's mother, whose name I think is Aithra, um, at the same time. Um, and I guess what's interesting about that story is um, when I tell it like that, it doesn't sound 
I mean, it's still abducting a child, but it doesn't sound mm. too bad. In some versions of the story, she's already given birth to his yes. daughter by the time that she's reclaimed by her brothers. So to suggest that she is not being raped as a child, it, it, that's not in the Greek is all I can tell you. Um, it's mm. very much. And I thought how interesting it was that we just don't think about that story because it's horrible. Um, and that and then, if we were to, we would never think a child was responsible for starting a war. And yet we always think of Helen as being responsible for starting the Trojan War, when at most she's a kind of co-respondent, I suppose. And in, in a version of her story, which dates back at least as far as Homer, so at least as far as the Iliad, she doesn't go to Troy at all, she goes to Egypt. Yeah, and then you say, uh, while in Troy, while um, uh, Paris uh, is killed, um, She's forced into an another arranged marriage. marriage with another Trojan. Yeah, and uh, and the words she uses, at least when she describes this in Euripides' play, the Troyes, Trojan women, she says "beer by force." Um, mm. Again, you know, we're we're pretty fluid in how we translate these things. In in my opinion, too fluid. We quite often will use phrases like "abduct" um, when what we mean is traffic. Um, yeah. And this is one of those times. It's like, well, forced marriage is, it's not, oh, you made me marry a man I didn't like. It's like, no, yeah. And, and, you know, she goes on to say that she tried to escape but got caught. Um, there's an absolutely extraordinary moment in a fragment of a Sophocles play called The Demand for Helen's Return, where we see Helen um, on the verge of suicide. She's trying to, she's thinking about drinking bull's blood, which is deeply poisonous. Um, because she feels such guilt for the Trojan War. And then just, I, I, can't, I still can't believe this is, it's one of these things where you're like, can this possibly be true? It feels so modern, but it's a fifth century fragment. Um, and she's, she's self-harming. She's um, scraping writing implements like pencils into her face. And I thought, my God, yeah. you know, this, the world's most beautiful woman trying to destroy that beauty with the tools that men have used to make her world famous for the beauty that she didn't ask yeah. for. How extraordinary. And that is two and a half thousand years old. Um, two and a half thousand years old. Uh, you, you remark in the book that it's believed we've lost about 90% of the written word from yeah. the ancient world. That's disappointing, um, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. How do we know it's 90%? Is that a very naive question? Or who, who's, who's made up the estimate on the lost literature? On, um, on, on what we lose, on, yes. On the 90%, who said, oh, we've, lost, we've only got 10% left? I, I mean, I, th know yeah. I think this is the work of, of hardcore papyrologists and those kinds of scholars. <laughs> so the people who are right. there looking at these manuscripts and you have lists often, because sometimes when you lose, for example, a library at Alexandria, um, there'll be parchments, there'll be lists elsewhere, right. papyri, which, which will list all the books that were in this category or that category, or we can look at, you know, the output of somebody like Cicero, and we know that he wrote, I think it was nine books of letters. I mean, Sappho is a perfect illustration, right? We have um, other accounts which say that, because her work lasts for a long time. We, we don't have it, but it did last. Um, and she wrote nine books of lyric poems. We've got three poems, and one of those poems was released in, in, to, into the world in 2014. So uh, until oh. six years ago, we had two. Uh, our full <laughs> poem collection of Sappho went up by 50% in 2014. <laughs> but once there were nine books, so we've lost way more than 90% of Sappho, for example. And yet lots of the things that we've lost, maybe we wouldn't have been that bothered about. But, you know, you only have to look at things like the, 
um, you know, sometimes it's like when we had the Oxyrhynchus papyri, of which there are still, I think I'm right to say, a hundred boxes un undug through and untranslated in Oxford. Um, and there are only about two people in the world who are qualified to do it. So don't anyone kill them. Um, <laughs> but sometimes, you know, you go to the trouble and it's, it's like receipts or something. It gives you a list of, you know, which cattle works. Oh, I mean, excuse me, <laughs> could, could we have a lost play by Euripides instead, please? But, you know, you don't get to choose what survives. Huh? But Sophocles is a good example. We know that he wrote between 100 and 150 plays and we have seven. You mentioned Euripides there, and you mentioned him several times in the book. Uh, seven out of his eight plays were about women, and you love the way of uh, the he tra writes. tragedies, yes. Yeah, the tragedies. Sorry, yeah. um, the way he writes about clever, creative women, um, and the insight that he he brings to that uh, work of art. Um, so he's um, he's one of the good guys. He's on my good list. Yeah, Euripides is very much my. It's always an A level question. So sometimes kids have to, you know, come and ask me at talks, um, wow. you know, is he a misogynist or a feminist? Because Aristophanes accused him of being a misogynist, and all the women wow. of Athens rise up against him in a play called The Poet and the Women um, because he's always being so mean about them. Um, and uh, of course, because he's always showing them doing terrible things uh, like murdering children, for example. <laughs> but clearly he's a great feminist before his time, even though this is a very anachronistic way of describing him because he writes these incredible roles for women and he has no hesitation about putting women at the center of the action. We have, I think I'm right to say 18 of his plays with one contested, the Rhesus maybe. Um, and eight of the surviving ones are about the Trojan War. And yes, seven of them have women as the title characters, the Andromache, the Electra, the Helen, the Hecabe, the Iphigenia and Aulis, Iphigenia among the Tarians and the Trojan women. Euripides knows that if you want drama in a war, you go to where the women are. If you want an epic, obviously you write the Iliad, but if you want the drama, <laughs> then you go for the women. He just knew it and he was right too, I think. And if he knew the drama lay with the women, which is presumably why your next book is going to be a novel uh, yes. based around Medusa. So you switch between uh, your history and then your fiction. Yes. Um, does one inevitably follow the other? Will you do two uh, history books in a row or will you always go history, dumb, research? I've done now three I'm going to use my imagination. In a row. So um, oh. I did Amber in 2014, Jocasta in twenty Yeah, and Shemota a thousand ships. And ships in 2019. Yeah. So to be honest, I was so demolished by the experience of writing ships, which was quite a harrowing um, voyage. Ah. Uh, to construct that I felt like I needed a sort of um, it's really lovely being able to do the research but not having to be inside it you know to look at these women's stories from the outside like I get to with Pandora when it just becomes like oh this is so cool oh let me tell you about this whereas having to imagine women who've gone through some of these experiences it's quite hard going after a while <laughs> and especially in ships where there were so many of them mm -hmm. um, it was like giving house room to most extraordinary damaged set of refugees and it's like this is i only have one brain and it's full um so yeah i needed a i needed my my heart needed a rest my brain was fine actually but my heart needed a rest of the ships so pandora that's was a nice way to put it brain actually, book, that... but my heart needed a little break yeah no so that's a very nice way to put it because sometimes we forget the i suppose the toll it takes on an author if you're dealing with a, a highly emotional dramatic uh, intense subject Right. And it's in your head all the time. You can't sort of switch it off because you're going back to that story again the next day. Yeah, no, you really live there. You live there for yeah. you know, months and months and months. And by the time you finished editing it, it's you know, usually well over a year for me. And I know I don't write particularly slowly relative to people who write longer books than I do or, or just you know, have spend more time over them, I guess. Um, and it's still 
it costs you. You know, I know that it's not going down a mine. I'm not pretending for five seconds that it's an <laughs> arduous job, but emotionally it's harrowing and it can mm. be anyway. Um, we're coming towards the end, Natalie, but one or two uh, brief questions. Um, there are so many gods in the ancient world, and I know you're a humanist yes in the modern world is that because you couldn't make up your mind who the hell was the best god in i just the love world? them i know it's really you I, love feel, them all. I feel really bad because I'm, as a humanist i'm really supposed to not like gods as much as i do but i do I, and the worse they behave i had the most fun writing them in ships because obviously you can write these horrible petulant female characters which generally you sort of feel like you're slightly betraying the sisterhood if you write women like that but they're so monstrous i had the best time doing them so yeah no i'm a terrible terrible humanist because even though i don't believe in gods i like writing them and talking about them i i'm, I'm sure the humanists being the uh, the kind of people that you are and they are they're not going to expel you for that uh, i don't think so it. not least because andrew copson who's their chief exec is another classicist so oh really i've just about made it under the wire because of it but yeah well, that's interesting. And as a classicist, because the, the other, uh, we started the conversation a little bit about your early immersion in the world, in the ancient world. Mm. And I've seen a previous quote when you said that sometimes people would be surprised at how many comedians have actually studied the classics at some stage. Lovely Andy Zaltzman for a start. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't know. Maybe we're just the kind of people who don't get proper jobs. Maybe there's a correlation between liking learning Greek for its own sake and liking dicking around on stage for its own sake. I mean, it, it feels like there's definitely potential here to draw a conclusion that it might not necessarily be a very generous one about us. But there we are. The big challenge for you, if you mentioned Andy Saltzman, who was one of my favorite comedians as well. What an is... excellent choice you've made. And a, just what? wonderful and delightful human being. Just well, I'm so glad to hear that, actually. And yes. I, I, I'm a big sports fan and I've loved him on cricket over this summer. So your challenge would be to accumulate the amount of knowledge he has about cricket, which I think would probably take you the next 40 years or whatever. Um, I mean, I'll do cricket if he does knitting. I think that's only fair. <laughs> I mean, that just seems fair to me. I, I'm happy. I'm, I will take this challenge on, Zaltzman. But you have to learn more than knit one, pearl one. That's my final offer. <laughs> I think that is a little clip that we may well use and put out the challenge to, uh, to see what happens. Maybe next year, both of you could come to, uh, to Harrogate and do yeah. knitting cricket, uh, a sort of duopoly on stage. Yeah, maybe I'll knit him a cricket jumper. That would be a nice thing to do, wouldn't it? Pandora's Jar, Women in the Greek Myths. Uh, you've learned a lot, but there's a lot more to, to read and enjoy in Natalie Haynes's uh, new book. So I'm going to say thank you, Natalie, for joining us at Harrogate. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I just got to finish by reminding you that uh, this has been a difficult year, obviously, for all book festivals. If you feel like uh, donating to the festival, you can do so online at Harrogate International Festivals.com, Harrogate International Festivals.com, or you can donate by texting. Uh, using the word HIF, hashtag HIF, and the number is 70085. But to Natalie Haynes, thank you for an immensely enjoyable discussion. And uh, thanks to Harry Good for making it all possible. Thank you for listening to The HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.